Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Tiffany Lamb, and you're listening to the Wheel Suckers podcast. The Wheel Suckers podcast is moulded in the studios of Wardour in fan-fucking-tastic Fitzrovia, London. One does not simply record podcasts at Wardour. They also do voiceovers and audiobooks. Let their professional team of engineers, producers and composers be your guide. Visit wardourstudios.co.uk for more. Today we're talking to Tiffany Lamb about intersectional feminism, autonomous vehicles and the right to the city. Hi, I'm your captain, Alex. I look after social media marketing and events at Look Mom No Hands, a cycling cafe bar workshop. You might have seen it on the telly <laughs> on Old Street London. And I'm joined by my stoker. Jenny's in the back. I am the director of the London Bike Kitchen. We are a do-it-yourself, do-it-together bike workshop located in London, Hackney. And we teach people how to fix their own bikes through classes, drop-in sessions, and our Women in Gender Variant and Women of Colour Nights. We have a guest in the studio today. First one of 2020. Yeah. returning guest. Returning guest. At it again. <laughs> so we'll put a link below to our previous interview with, can you please say your name and say hi? I'm Sister to be back. I'm Tiffany Lamb. I am currently based at the New Economics Foundation, where I am working as a consultant. And I am very passionate about feminism, cycling, urban stuff and cats. Nice. I like all those things. <laughs> <laughs> so our previous recording was almost a year and a half ago. And at that time, you were about to release a zine called Mind the Cycling Gender Gap. And now it, you've released not one, but two editions. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, what is the cycling gender gap? And what's been the response to the two zines? So in London, approximately 75% of cyclists are men. And this ratio, like for every female cyclist, uh, three to four male cyclists, that's pretty consistent across English-speaking low cycling contexts. So that's not just the UK, but the US, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand we're also seeing this same gender gap emerging in Spain and France as well. Uh, so obviously, it's a systemic issue. Um, and yeah, I found it quite fun to explore in 
the scenes just to unpack that a bit more and get some of the stories behind that. So not only looking at um, what are, it's not really about what the barriers are to cycling, but more of the positive experiences of cycling and um, just women's experiences of cycling in urban space and things that aren't really captured through transport snapshots and yeah I guess the reception's been very positive it's something I kind of take for granted sometimes since I'm just so used to talking about the gender gap in cycling thinking about it but I guess it is quite interesting if you haven't thought about it before that this is a systemic issue and whether or not you're into cycling you can at least get into it because it reflects broader gender inequalities I was wondering, I noticed in your the new anthology that you've contributed to, the academic one, you've actually used, I think, some of the stories from mm-hmm. the zines. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like your zines are this other side, like the flip side of the work you do, I guess. How does it feel when you've got like two kind of channels to communicate this idea? I guess... It's a good thing in the sense that you're reaching out to different audiences, some that may not respond one way or may not be reachable one way. Um, And I think it's really important to have um, real people's stories as kind of the backbone of a broader critique um, and analysis, just because if it's not grounded in people's lived experiences, then it has less um, truth or validity to it. That's really interesting. You worked for a spell at a self-driving autonomous vehicle firm. Can you tell us more and how did it go? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like there was a moment like last year when self-driving cars became huge. And I noticed that a lot of academics who um, research and teach on active travel uh, were doing a lot of research on autonomous vehicles. And it just seemed to be something everybody in like the urban mobility scene was discussing whether or not you drive in like cars. Um, And I feel like I had a very negative perception of the whole AV industry. And I felt like I just had to be immersed for a teeny bit just to know what it was like and see it firsthand. And I really tried to go in open-minded, except I think like three, four months at an AV startup just really uh, reinforced all of the pre-existing ideas I had and kind of everything I read about AVs, what was problematic about them, just was reinforced through my experience working at the firm. It was funny because I remember I went to a lot of these smart mobility, intelligent mobility, future mobility events. And at all of them, one the venues did not have gender-neutral bathrooms. And two, there was never a queue for the women's <laughs> toilets. And the men would just be standing and complaining about how long they'd have to wait until they could pee. And it's like, well, that's the Welcome story to of our women's world. lives. <laughs> so I think that's a reflection of how gender 
is relevant or rather irrelevant in that industry. And not only is it very male dominated, but they're also designing AVs for people like them who are men. Um, and yeah, that obviously raises a lot of concerns around um, diversity and inclusion. And another thing is a lot of um, people working in the AV industry, and I think this is true in other um, transport innovation companies as well, like uh, Dockless Bikes and things, they don't necessarily have any knowledge about um, urban policy, transport policy. Um, they're just really interested in the technology side of things. And I think it's easy to get carried away by these shiny new toys that promise magical solutions, but without an understanding of the actual problems that they're meant to solve, they don't really do much. You've touched a little bit about like your opinions about the autonomous vehicle industry, and I'm wondering if you can elaborate a bit more of like this is why it's not a, a I hate using this word a panacea. Mm -hmm. uh, like it's not going to solve all our problems, but also if you can elaborate more on like the some more examples of why these autonomous vehicles are just no good. Uh, sure. So I think one of the most obvious things is that an autonomous vehicle is still another vehicle on the road. Um, so not only is that just another car, but in terms of the materials and supply chain and carbon footprint, it's still quite big. And I think some people in the industry would argue that AVs are good for uh, older people or people with disabilities, and it would just help them move around more easily. But the question I would respond with is, how are they demonstrating a commitment to serving an inclusive population when it's clearly not an industry that reflects the diversity of the population it claims to benefit and serve. Um, and building off of that, autonomous vehicles are an example of a technocratic solution to a social and political problem and without an understanding of social and political issues, then it's unclear how autonomous vehicles would be a solution to any of them. Oh, that's depressing. <laughs> it is. It's really depressing. Because like, there, yeah. there's probably nobody that has a disability that's on these, in these firms, right? Like mm -hmm. the, the staff are just, it's like bro, tech bro, another arm of tech bro culture. Yeah. And the firm I was at, everybody in the office was a cyclist or mostly everybody, except it wasn't clear how the technology was accounting for cyclists. And I think there's a lot of hype about what the technology can do, but the truth is that it's not, it can't do what it promises. And I think the tech or the startup industry is characterized by big promises and just very charismatic leaders who can just charm audiences. Uh, but there's often not a lot of substance behind what they say. And in my experience, uh, I haven't seen any 
AV firms that are thinking about cyclists and really trying to ensure that the technology can detect cyclists in a practical way without like removing cyclists and people from streets. Hmm. Just, yeah, I can just imagine <laughs> really it. Just this bad. self-driving car just driving into a cyclist, and you just think, yeah, yeah. it's really bad. Or it's like when they made the hand dryers, and like when the detector put the person with white skin put their hands under, it was fine, it works. But then the person with dark skin put the hands under, and it's like didn't turn on. Yeah, they didn't even think about yeah. it. Like, ah. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, we were going to ask what are the dangers. But I feel like. We know a lot of them, but where because you mentioned you already had some preconceived ideas about working there, and what what kind of things did you find out? <laughs> if you could say that, well, I guess I was just surprised by the, I mean, surprised and not surprised by the disconnect between these really uh, sweeping claims about what AVs would do, how they would transform. Uh, signals as we know them and how people move and the reality of the technology not being as advanced as uh, it was claimed to be and also people working in the industry not really uh, knowing anything about or wanting to learn about diversity, urban issues, uh, transport policy. And yeah, it just seemed... Like it was a load of crap and you can say you'll do all these things, but if there is no follow through or no evidence of an intention to try and start to follow through, then it's really difficult to believe all the positive hype about AVs. Did you bring these issues up with them when you were there? I did. Um, And I think... Because the funding models for a lot of these transport tech companies are, um, you know, it's all held up by venture capital. It's kind of a bubble and there's less interest in grappling with real issues and things that would be problematic if they ever became like real live on streets and more pressure to please the investors and the board and um yeah, it was a long about profit or trying to make the next funding round. And I think grappling with these complications about urban policy, transport policy, diversity and inclusion just weren't seen to be relevant to profit or securing future funding. So it was deemed as less relevant. It's ridiculous, That's isn't so it? Dumb. It's God. really ridiculous. <laughs> Like, I keep thinking as well, like, where are they all going to go? But just things like... Driving like you said, like, it's still just putting cars on the road, yeah. essentially. It's still just cars on the it's road. It's just more cars on the road. doesn't matter who's driving them. And the issue I see the, with um, AV cars is if there is a collision, who's to blame? Who do you blame? We blame the car. Classic. <laughs> was no Some, driver. A non-sentient, <laughs> like, fault. piece of metal. <laughs> goes to prison like yeah we just take the motherboard out and lock it up yeah it's ridiculous <laughs> that's that's uh, my worry with like yeah self-driving things yeah, it removes blame it removes it? blame mm. it becomes this like corporations are people it's like it's fine because mm-hmm. oh god what you were saying before with the um hand drying machines mm. the same biases that are built into technology uh, now are being reproduced in AVs, but with obviously more uh, dangerous consequences because 
at the end, they are steel cars, so just giant boxes of metal that can kill people. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I just want to scream ban what? cars, but it's like, <laughs> so much more than that. Yeah, hashtag ban cars. Yeah. Maybe something on to a bit more hopeful. You've contributed to a new academic anthology that's coming out soon. Quite a few years in the works, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Gendering Smart Mobilities which is a very academic-sounding title. Yeah. <laughs> can you can you elaborate a bit more what that means and also what your contribution was to it? Sure. So uh, my contribution was Chapter 7. It's called Cycling London, an Intersectional Feminist Perspective. I guess I'll deconstruct the name of the book, uh, Gendering Smart Mobilities. So working backwards, uh, this is quite jargony, But there has been a shift from using the word transport to using the word mobility when we discuss walking, cycling, public transport, driving. Um, And I guess there are a couple of reasons why. But I think one of the key things is mobility is understood as something you have, um, like you are, you have the ability to be mobile or you aren't. while transport is something you do or something does it to you, like something moves you around. Um, And one of the good things about reframing it as mobility is you kind of see it on multiple scales. So there's like the very personal or interpersonal uh, urban scale of how we get around on a day-to-day basis, whether you walk, take the tube, the bus, whatever. And you can also scale up and think about it globally in terms of um, like flows of migration and just human movement. Yeah, and the smart dimension refers to technological innovations in transport, so autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, dockless bikes, um, all of that. Uh, and we're increasingly seeing a lot of um, startups disrupting the uh, transport mobility space. Um, and that's where the gender perspective or gendering comes in just to analyze these um, technological innovations in urban mobility from a gender perspective, which just means thinking about how gender is considered, if at all, in the process of designing these technologies or implementing them and what the impact is. Fancy. Yeah, sounds sounds a mouthful. (laughs) That's academia for you. Why is intersectional feminism so important in developing smart tech and transport? Smart tech and transport are largely framed as, or I guess transport is framed as a technocratic issue. You can see that the transport sector really prioritizes quantitative data, um, economics, engineering, and they love those numbers. Yeah. Kind of crunch data. <laughs> exactly. And a technocratic framing makes it really difficult to make issues around gender and social inclusion seem relevant because it's like, well, uh, what's the percentage? Or we can't really analyze that from a data perspective. Um, so an intersectional feminist perspective is important because issues of how we get around where, when, 
and why are really about power and privilege. And going back to mobility, not everyone has the right to move around. Um, and even in terms of mobility, some people enjoy safer passage around the city than others. Um, and it's really important that we have an intersectional perspective that takes into consideration how identity influences how you experience and move around in public space. So this means considering how perceptions of safety can really vary based on race, gender, class, uh, sexuality, things like that. And obviously, factors like class impact your access to resources, like the work you have, the housing tenure you have will influence your access to resources, which can make certain modes of transport less or more viable. And also the types of trips that you make. Historically, transport planning has been designed for or designed with the male breadwinner in mind to makes that long commute from the suburbs into the city center for work and then goes back home at the end of the day. Whereas in reality, a lot of people don't, that isn't really reflective of how people travel now. And there's a lot of evidence that women tend to do more trip training than men do. So they don't make that long A to B, B to A journey. They make stops along the way, uh, largely for care responsibilities or um, education, uh, social opportunities, things like that. So um, we really need to challenge the dominant paradigm in transport planning, which favors technological solutions or uh, quantitative economic engineering solutions and really bring in more of that social perspective. Yes, nodding. Mm. Yeah, enthusiastically. nodding a lot. Yes. <laughs> you can't hear it, but I'm nodding a lot. Yes. <laughs> in your essay, uh, you go into great detail about that implicit male bias that's found in London's cycling infrastructure, both hard and soft, which hard infrastructure is like the road and things that are built up, and then soft infrastructure is like more cultural, I guess, or how we market ideas around cycling, I think. Is that correct? Yeah. Education, peer support, encouragement, and representation would all count as examples of soft, soft infrastructure. infrastructure. Um, but could you tell our listeners what this the implicit male bias entails and what effects it has? I think you touched on it a bit already with that the A to B commuting, but there's other things that crop up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess one of the first things about hard or infrastructure is that it's conceptualized as hard or soft, and that kind of binary thinking just echoes and reflects the gender binary that things are A or B. And within that hard infrastructure, that which is material, is privileged over things like education, support, encouragement, and these are all the kinds of things that are needed to get more diverse kinds of people cycling, but they are often, um, they're not thought to be as valuable as the hard or material infrastructure. 
And this isn't to say that material infrastructure like quality cycling lanes and cycle racks are not necessary. It's just to really emphasize that we need both. And oftentimes, hard infrastructure gets prioritized over soft infrastructure. And you're not going to get more diverse kinds of people cycling without investments in both hard and soft infrastructure. And again, it's not really useful to think about infrastructure in that kind of binary because hard infrastructure, uh, because it is kind of an engineering solution, gets prioritized because infrastructure is framed in a technocratic way, which goes back to my earlier points about how this technocratic paradigm really favors engineering, economic and technological solutions which are only just a part of what you need. And in terms of the hard infrastructure or the material infrastructure, radio planning is kind of the norm in transport planning, which is the thing of planning for the historic male breadwinner who makes that journey from the suburbs to the city center for work and back again. And yeah, that reflects an implicit male bias since women just don't travel that way. And also because it was intended for the historic male breadwinner, women never were really part of that um, thinking. Also speed, yeah. like prioritizing fast, the cycle super highways. Like. Yeah, yeah. And the speed thing is to ensure that people can get to work quickly. As time. Our, Don't piss off your boss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as if, like, traveling to work and economic productivity is the only reason we should have transport infrastructure. Yeah, like, it's not for anything else that you would do. Yeah. <laughs> like, or it's not as important. Life. Yeah. Not important. Going to work is the most important. Yeah. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. 
But how can intersectional feminism be integrated into transportation infrastructure development? So I think there are two things that have to happen simultaneously. The first is to increase women's representation in the sector or just increase diversity more broadly. Um, and the second piece of it is incorporating that intersectional feminist perspective. Uh, both are needed to challenge and shift the existing paradigm and promote um, inclusion. So it's not just about adding more women or adding more people of color to the mix and assuming that because the room's more diverse, then we'll just have more diversity and um, everything will be all right. It's about challenging the way that knowledge is produced and challenging the ideas of good practice, which um, men and women, all people can internalize. So it's not like there's something inherent about being female, that if you are added to a mostly male group of engineers, that the solutions will be radically different. It's about both have to happen. You need to diversify from within and incorporate an intersectional perspective. That's true. I think too many people think so long as they hire like one or two token members of staff, it's like, ah, my job here is done. Yeah. I don't have to do anything anymore. Tick those boxes. Mm -hmm. And it's like, wow, that was maybe half the battle. Yeah. But, like <laughs> you really have to, it's like top down and bottom up kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like it has to get talked about and integrated into like day-to-day -day workings. I get really frustrated with yeah. organizations and businesses that just think, let's do a marketing campaign with a person of color and that we're done. Yeah. <laughs> We've changed the world. Yeah. And, yeah. Because Emily talked about it before because we, I don't think we put it here actually because we usually ask how can we get more women of color or just minority cycling. Just like what we're saying now, you can't just hire somebody. Like Everybody needs support from both sides. You need to listen to everybody. And the more and more now I see it, the more you just see it happening. And it's just kind of really frustrating because it's just not a simple solution. But mm -hmm. is, that, is that how you would see getting more uh, women, minorities on bikes if we integrated those things into transport planning? I don't know. Maybe we should just reword that question. <laughs> We made a point to ask everybody so that everybody got asked it, but we didn't put it. I didn't put it in. <laughs> we failed. Because we always find it's like, especially with like cycling panels, like those people that it affects get asked it. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you can't keep you gotta... just asking them. Yeah. You need to be asking everybody so that everybody's aware of it and everybody is thinking about it. Yeah, because if you're not planting that seed of, oh, I actually can contribute towards this, even though it doesn't relate to me. Like, mm. everybody should be involved and everybody should be thinking mm -hmm. about it. And also, like, women can internalize sexism, people of color can internalize racism. So you can have women or people of color at the table and they can still say sexist or racist things. And it's like that kind of thinking has to be challenged, which can be hard when we're all socialized in certain ways um, to think certain things behave in certain ways and feel like certain things are normal and what we should be doing. So I think it's really important to simultaneously diversify and also just challenge existing knowledge structures. And that's where the intersectionality is really important. What's your overall experience of being a woman in the transport scene? That's a good question. 
I guess I didn't really consider myself in the transport scene since I've never really worked for like a transport agency or company. Um, I've and I've always approached transport as like a power and privilege issue. Because for me, it's not about the like typical moving as many people or as many goods as quickly as you can, but more about how do people access resources, um, opportunities, and yeah, how do people experience their world in a mobile way? Um, and when I, since I have had exposure to the transport scene while not being really in it, um, I feel like it's one good thing is that it's changing. Um, there are more diverse voices in transport, in mobility, and um, along them are women, people of color, younger people who aren't necessarily from engineering or economics background. So that's a positive sign in how the field is changing and reflecting more of um, people that it should serve. And I think that said, there are still lots of barriers to women in transport for the same reasons that there are barriers to women in STEM, just like an underrepresentation, and then sexual harassment or just implicit bias in the workplace can really deter women from progressing, and a lack of female role models also makes it hard to retain women. Do you see it getting better? In some ways, yes. I feel like there's a lot more discussion of a gender perspective or at least um, diversity in transport. Um, But I feel like until there's more diversity and investment in understanding and applying intersectionality to the work, then it won't really change. Do you ever feel like there's um, like backlash or kickback against some of the things you propose? Yeah, I feel like in terms of like cycling, a lot of mainstream cycling groups view infrastructure as kind of like the one and only thing. Um, and there's acknowledgement that you need more than just cycling to get more people cycling, especially more diverse kinds of people cycling. But it just seems a bit too um, single-mindedly focused on infrastructure. And that, again, makes it hard to bring up the relevance of um, peer support, education, encouragement, more diverse representation. I think last week got an email from someone saying that the Women of Color Cycling Group that started a couple of years ago is racist and offensive and a terrible idea. And it's not the first time, actually, is and, it? Yeah, I'm it shocked. A lot. <laughs> I'm shocked the amount of kickback we've gotten for the Women of Color Group as opposed to the the Women and Gender Variant Group. We got some at the beginning, but then it kind of... I think people just stopped caring, which in a way is kind of good. (laughs) But they really care about this. They really care about, you know, women of color getting together and talking about bikes. And I I actually wrote a response, but I haven't sent it yet because part of me is like, 
why the fuck do I have to do all the work to show you that why this group needs to exist? Yeah. But at the same time, I have a response and I kind of want to say it. Mm-hmm. But it's that I don't I don't understand. They, they think it's like I'm using air quotes here, reverse racism. Oh, yeah. That's um, And it is yeah. absolute horseshit. And I get really frustrated by people trying to apply like the same model of thinking when not, they don't understand power structures yeah. and mm-hmm. in systemic racism, systemic sex, is, like it's all related. It's the intersectional mm-hmm. view. And yeah, so that's why I feel like we still have a lot of work to do. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, sometimes when I talk about the gender gap in cycling, men will just say, well, my girlfriend cycles or oh, my housemate who's female cycles and say, great, you know, one woman who cycles. There is no gender gap. Case closed. Yeah, it's just just because you have a personal experience about yeah. something doesn't mean it applies to everybody. Yeah. But then you have to throw numbers back at them for them to listen. Then you say like, well, statistically speaking, we have 75% of, of road yeah. users are, are men. And yeah. so that's where like talking to that kind of mindset, that's when they start to listen. And that's why the numbers are important yeah because some people don't understand the qualitative analysis they want the quantitative and to an extent that can be partially blamed on just the way transport like as a field academically and professionally has been so technocratic just framed around the quantitative side the engineering tech economics if that's how you've been trained then your gut reaction to any discussion about the gender gap or issues around diversity and inclusion would be whoa that's really political and this isn't don't bring politics into this but it's kind of like well everything is political and everything is about power and privilege and that's the lens you have to see the world through (laughs) (laughs) i just you should make your response public i think yeah i I think that would be quite important because i think i think this isn't the last time that you're going to get these these queries and complaints because i've had them via look mom on twitter i've seen them and it's like people just can't get their head around why and i think so unfair it's not fair that we always have to keep explaining it yeah it's not fair because it's draining yeah it is and it it really drains you and really gets you down but i think if you flip it and make something public you can almost kind of link to that and Mm. be like i already made this response yeah almost like an faq you're like oh you have some questions (laughs) they point you in this direction And also one of my favorite thinkers is um, the black feminist writer, Audrey Lorde. Mm. And one of my favorite quotes of hers is, your silence will not protect you. So yeah, I advocate for speaking. Yeah, it's definitely going to go out. It was just now I'm like, okay, well, then maybe let's make it public. A little bit about where you're working right now. Um, I've been a fan of uh, New Economics Foundation for several years. I think they're one of the few progressive think tanks that's actually like doing more stuff rather than just like telling people this is how you should be living your life and etc. I don't know. But how do you see um, your work feeding into their politics and our current political climate? So I guess two things. One... 
The way that the New Economics Foundation is structured is that there is like the think tank arm that does a lot of the policy wonking. There's an organizing arm which does a lot of the, I guess, grassroots and community-led organizing work that informs the way the think tank um, approaches policy. And there's the consulting bit, um, which I'm part of. And I guess the idea is to action the ideas and proposals of the uh, think tank part into the real world or just shift the way external organizations and um, the public sector think about and approach issues. And the second thing is the New Economics Foundation has three new mission areas now, which are all really exciting and inspiring for me. So the Green New Deal is one of them. Um, and yeah, that's a, I'm sure you've heard along about that in the news. It's just a bigger and systemic response to the climate emergency. Uh, the second mission area is the new social settlement, which is quite exciting and encompasses a range of things uh, such as universal public services, the four-day work week, an end to precarious labor. Um, and the last mission area is democratic ownership, um, which is just about rethinking and reorganizing the way we structure the economy so that there is more collective ownership and we're not at the mercy of corporations or elites. Renationalize yes, the railways. Yes, amazing. <laughs> yes. All of this. <laughs> uh, yeah, I want to talk about healthy streets now. Yeah. That's cool. I put the quote in, I guess, for anybody that doesn't know. Working across London's boroughs to reduce school-run traffic and encourage greater walking, cycling and public transport use. So can you just tell us a bit about what you've done? So I've done an UDI, Equalities, Diversity and Inclusion, training with the new Healthy Streets officers to just challenge them to think about how to apply intersectionality in their work and what I think is really exciting is that the Healthy Streets officers come from a range of backgrounds. So some have more like urban street design background and others uh, have more of like a campaigning background. Um, but it's a good group to work with since they will be working across London to try and implement healthy streets. And I guess the challenge really is how do you translate these principles and concepts um, like intersectionality into your work so that healthy streets are delivered, designed and delivered in an inclusive way. And just to clarify, this is work with Sustrans and it's a healthy streets program that's mm -hmm. Every borough or every yeah, two boroughs share a new officer yeah. and mm -hmm. they are working with the council. Um, mm -hmm. We've been chatting with the Hackney Islington officer about getting some, I don't know, working on some collaborative things. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm looking forward to that. There was another quote that you mentioned in your, your essay about this, the right to the city, mm -hmm. which I thought was really it's so important. It's so central. And it, the idea that, like, these streets are your streets. They're everyone's streets. And no one can take that away from you. And I remember one of the first things um, when I started becoming a cyclist, 
in London, uh, more air quotes there, colleague said, you have every right to be on the road as anyone else. Don't let them bully you. Take the lane. You have to assert yourself. And I genuinely felt this knock-on effect of... I started, So I started doing it, and I really started to feel more just assertive as a human being. Mm-hmm. And in your essay, you talk about how women are generally socialized to be small, don't take up space, and how cycling can change how women exist Mm -hmm. in the public arena. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit more about that, the right to the city. Yeah, so the right to the city, I guess, is the right of all people, present and future, permanent and temporary, to inhabit, use, occupy, produce, govern and enjoy just, inclusive, safe and sustainable urban space. And it started as an academic concept that's rooted in like Marxism and just a critique of how urban space is being co-opted by capital. So it's less about the flow of people, but more about capital investments, money, and how that transforms urban space. Um, And it's been making its way out of academia into like UN documents like the New Urban Agenda, which was released in like 2016, 2017, mentions the right to the city. And it's become a topic of discussion and debate for urban policymakers. And even at the UN level, which is really refreshing. Um, And yeah, I've been trying to, or one of the things I've talked to the SUSTRANS Healthy Streets officers about is just reframing the narrative uh, and making it about the right to the city. Because sometimes when you're trying to promote cycling or active travel, it can just be so polarizing. You get like the war on cars or just um, stuff about like, well, I'm not a cyclist. And the other day, a cyclist almost ran me over. So I didn't like cyclists anyway. And I think it'd be more useful and productive to frame it around the right to the city because fundamentally, when we want more bikeable cities, we really just want more livable cities that are inclusive and safe for people of all um, bodies to move around in and to enjoy. And it's funny that you mentioned what I wrote about in my um, chapter in the book about how cycling can be a way for women to kind of uh, change the way they inhabit their bodies and um, just learn to take up more space. It's funny because when I wrote that essay, um, I guess that was at the forefront of my mind because in my experience, when I, like also in Eric Woods, became a cyclist, I feel like it really shielded me from street harassment that I previously experienced basically daily, um, just taking public transport or walking down the street. And when I was cycling, I was either too busy focusing on the road to notice anyone trying to catcall at me or grab my attention in an obnoxious way, um, or I just didn't real, or I was moving too quickly for it to really happen. So I remember friends would tell me about um, their experiences on the tube, and I would just be like, "Wow, that's like so far from my reality now." Because as a cyclist, I just 
don't have to. I'm not in those spaces where that happens. Uh, but lately, I've been thinking more about how road safety or road aggression is so gendered. And um, there's a 2014-2015 study by Rachel Aldred, um, the Near Miss Project, which showed that women are like twice as likely than men to be harassed while cycling, which includes like intimidation by drivers, close passes, all that. Uh, and over the summer, there was a US-based study that came out that confirmed that um, women are more likely to be closely passed when cycling than men. And also over the summer, there was like a series of blogs on street blog New York about uh, Me Too while cycling, and they had crowdsourced women cyclists in New York, their experiences of harassment while cycling. And yeah, people shared all sorts of stories and videos and basically showed that harassment is also a daily experience for female cyclists, at least in New York. And yeah, I guess I've been thinking about that more lately, how my experience of cycling being safer from street harassment isn't the case for all women. And I even know someone who have stopped cycling because they've been harassed more, or the type of harassment is very specific to the fact that they're like cycling. Um, but more importantly, I think the road safety aspect really needs more consideration, especially from like an enforcement or policy perspective. And yeah, I think about that a lot when I'm cycling. And if I try and take the lane because there are potholes ahead, then the drivers behind me will just beep at me and some even open their windows and just shout and curse at me. But if a male cyclist does the exact same thing, they just go along, they wait patiently, and it's not so much of a problem. Reminds me, I got so angry about that Guardian article. They, they wrote a piece about, yeah, female cyclists are more harassed than men. Mm. And I was just like, and? <laughs> you know, you're like, and? What? I we, just was like, <laughs> yeah, I was like, I know this, we all know this. Yeah. And I guess, because we all known it and experienced it for a lot longer, and I just, I just wanted a bit more, like... There's Hollaback, which is an organisation mm. that helps people who've experienced harassment in public spaces. So it's not just for cycling, but for walking. And it's kind of therapeutic that you can go on that website and fill it out and type up your experiences. And the Near Miss Project, which I think mm -hmm. is really important that yeah. so many near misses aren't documented. And I just like tweeted out like, this article's trash. I hate it. And people were like, so <laughs> many so many men were like, but I never knew about this. And I was like, okay, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really glad you've learned about this. But I just think, I just when I read something like that, I just wanted to add to it. I wanted to just provide support and advice and not just to kind of share those experiences and just leave it at that. Mm -hmm. I was like, can we just please start doing a bit more about it? You just think, what can we be doing next? How can we be making it better? Mm -hmm. Not that those solutions totally help, but you just think you, sometimes you just can't just keep screaming into a void. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're like being your head against the wall. <laughs> yeah, it felt that way. Mm. It really felt that way. I remember. Shall we end on some fun stuff? Yeah. <laughs> fun stuff. Do you listen to other podcasts? I do. Yeah, our new thing now is we want three podcast recommendations. Call Your Girlfriend is a 
podcast I really like, and their last episode was on like bad bo- uh, bad bosses and toxic workplaces, which was really interesting uh, to listen to. They not only reflect on like Me Too and what that means in terms of women's career development and just the unfairness of women thinking like, I want to be this, I'll try my hand in this field, and then finding out actually you're just going to get harassed, so you toughen up or the harassment drives you out, and then you can't pursue this career anymore. So go back to admin or attempting, and it's just so infuriating. But Call Your Girlfriend is a fun feminist podcast as well. Um, I like the New Economics Foundation podcast. Um, and the Talking Headways is like a transport podcast thing I enjoy listening to. Jenny, I don't know. Did that pick up Jenny's stomach? I think you like that podcast or your stomach likes it. Hungry for it. <laughs> Hungry for podcasts. Sounds delicious. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> So what was the last one again it was called? Talking Headways. Talking Headways, cool. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's Thank really you. good. Yeah. Really interesting. If you like what we do, <laughs> squish that like button, rate us on iTunes, and subscribe. If you can't give us your money, give, give us, us your stars. And don't keep us a secret. Slam that share button and tell all your podcast listening and perhaps also cycling friends about our show. Who's really channeling Bane there? <laughs> Bane on a plane. Bane, Bane on, on a plane. Bane on a bike. Bane on a bike. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.